Hello and welcome to The HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode, and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello, and welcome to The HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and today we're joined by Adrian Adams, Dennis Brooks, and Tim Klein. Adrian Adams is a founding partner of Adams Sterling, one of the leading attorneys in California specializing in common interest developments. He's also the creator of the davissterling.com website, which provides a searchable online resource for laws relating to common interest developments in California. Dennis Brooks is a licensed general contractor. In 1983, he founded Design Build Associates, a construction management firm with clients all over Southern California. He's very active in CAI and has been a speaker at numerous chapter events over the years and helped hundreds of HOAs with their construction projects. And Tim Klein is the founder of the Klein Agency Insurance Brokers and specializes exclusively in common interest developments. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Ryan. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So on June 24th, 2021, the Champlain Towers South Condominium Building suffered a partial collapse. As of the date of this recording, 97 people have been confirmed dead, still more are missing, making it one of the deadliest structural collapses in American history. The NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is currently investigating the cause of the collapse. I've asked Tim and Adrian and Dennis to join us today to discuss what we know so far about the cause of the collapse, what we expect to happen from both an insurance and liability standpoint, to those owners and the board of directors at Champlain Towers South, and finally, what lessons we can take away from this terrible tragedy in regards to our own communities. So let's start with the cause of loss. Dennis, obviously they're still investigating, but what do we know so far about the likely cause of the collapse? Well, I've read all the articles that I can find uh, so far on that, and I've also watched a numerous number of, of videos that various consultants and engineers have put out. And it seems that there's going to be ultimately a number of things that led to this disaster. There could be end up some design issues with the original drawings, construction issues with how the building was actually built and whether or not those conformed to the original drawings and intent. And then we're going to find out a lot about the maintenance of the building and how well it was maintained and whether or not it was maintained at all and how that contributed to the collapse. So I think those are going to be the things that we see that led to the disaster. But there were certainly warning signs, and the HOA had seen those. They had meetings uh, with their homeowners, previous boards, try to pass assessments to deal with these issues. And they were just about ready to start making repairs. But it was kind of like way too late in the process. I've seen a lot of those videos and you can very clearly see, you know, the visible warning signs in the garage, peeling paint and water stains on the cement columns. It's been suggested there was drainage problems in the planters. The pool may have been leaking. It's also been reported that there was subsidence of the building by about two millimeters every year. And perhaps the void space between the slab and the piling caps is too great. Is it possible that we won't be able to say definitively what the actual cause of the collapse was because there were just too many factors? Well, it's possible. I'm sure that this will be studied by NPIS, and it will be also studied uh, by structural engineers. Um, There will be litigation that comes out of this that will have numerous experts and testimony, and that'll go on for years, likely. 
yeah, it's it's possible, but we'll never know the impetus for the collapse. But it's likely that it was a combination. You know, the building stood for 40 years. It's likely that it's going to be a combination of these things that are ultimately determined to be contributing to the, the, the collapse of the building. Now, Tim, how important is it from an insurance standpoint for the cause of loss to be definitively determined? Is that going to affect the property insurance coverage? You know, it is, unfortunately. The ISO form, the ISO special form, is built on what we used to call an all-risk policy concept, and that is everything's covered except for the, those items specifically excluded, and then for the next two and a half or three pages in very small print, <laughs> we tell you all the exclusions. One of the exclusions in the all-risk form is, unfortunately, collapse. And in fact, they've defined collapse, not only just collapse, but any abrupt falling down of the structure, any structural uh, loss of integrity, anything that didn't even have the potential of falling down is going to be excluded under the policy. So they're very, very specific about those things that they do not want to cover. This includes such things as cracking, bulging, sapping, bending, leaning, settling. Um, they, they're very specific about what these instances may lead to ultimately to the building collapse. So essentially, the we'd expect the property carrier to look at it and say, this is a collapse, we're not going to cover this. So then would the burden of proof be on the insured, the association, to try to prove that it was? Well, interestingly enough, the, the all-risk form does put the burden on the carrier to show that it was specifically excluded. However, uh, one of the exceptions to the collapse exclusion are some certain named perils. And those named perils include such things as windstorm, hail, smoke, riot, vehicle, commotion, vandalism, malicious mischief, firefighting equipment. That then places the burden on the insured to, to show that one of those particular items led to the collapse. So how do you expect that the carriers will respond to this loss? I think they're going to try to decline to cover the coverage, provide any coverage for this collapse. So the exception to the specified causes of loss include fire, lightning, explosion, wind, storm, hail, smoke, aircraft, vehicles, riot. Okay, but none of those are really coming into play here. No, I don't think so. I, I, I think this is poor maintenance and poor, you know, and lack of maintenance leads to failure. And wear and tear is not a covered cause of loss. We wouldn't expect coverage on the property portion. Unfortunately, no. Hi, this is Tim Klein. I just want to interrupt this podcast to bring you an update on some of the insurance issues that have come to light regarding the Champaign Towers South building collapse claim. At the time we recorded this podcast, we thought that the carrier was going to be hanging on to the collapse exclusion and some of the other language contained in the policy, including exclusions for inherent vice, building defect, poor materials and workmanship, settling cracking, all which could have led to the building collapse and maybe triggered a concurrent causation claim, meaning that if one thing was excluded, i.e. collapsed, but other things contributed to it that maybe have been covered, that the carrier would be obligated to pay the claim. In this case, the carrier apparently trying to avoid notoriety just decided to pay the entire $30 million and just walk away. Now that comes on the heels of the general liability carrier doing exactly the same thing. James River, the general liability carrier, said they paid their $2 million. And what's interesting on the liability side is that the minute that the liability carrier pays their policy limits, they're no longer responsible for defense costs. So as you know, under general liability policy, there are two provisions. The carrier has to pay the defense and the indemnity. 
Well, now the indemnity payments been made, the defense costs are no longer being reimbursed. So they've kind of cut their losses and kind of taken themselves out of the spotlight. I'm sure they're hopeful that uh, their name's not mentioned with regard to this claim in the future. And there's every reason to believe now that the $15 million umbrella, which acts excess to that $2 million, will also collapse like a house of cards. And the carriers responsible for those layers will pay their portion of the claim. That will give the association a total of $47 million, if I got my math right. Uh, that is $30 million on the property side with Great American, $2 million from James River, and a $15 million umbrella. Oh boy, that's just not enough. This one attorney argues that the claims, expect the aggregate amount of the claim out of a billion dollars. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. There are already three or four construction defect claims. There's a contract and uh, indemnity claim. There's a premises liability claim and some professional liability claims against the contractor and the engineer that did the presentation. So boy, it's going to be a going to be a mess. Okay, so that's the update. Property carrier the general liability care, and we believe now the umbrella care will just pay policy limits and uh, move on. And so now uh, we'll see how the individual unit owner claims double themselves out over the next uh, months. Okay, now we'll turn you back to your regular scheduled podcast. Now, what about liability coverage for the board of directors, for the association owners? I think there's every reason to believe there's going to be coverage under the liability portion of the policy. The only challenge is, of course, how much liability coverage did they maintain? There's a lot of folks standing in line for that coverage. I mean, the, the 97? Yeah, 97. 97 victims so far and their families? All the owners that, that lived that, that had all their property lost in the event? I mean, these are all substantial claims. And unfortunately, the amount of liability coverage, even if it's 25 or $50 million, is going to be gone pretty quickly. So that's under the general liability policy. What about the board of directors, the DNO policy? So here's the one area where I don't expect there to be any coverage either, because most directors and officers' liability policies have an outright property damage exclusion. So if if the board is being sued in, as a result of or in relationship to a property damage loss, there's no coverage under the directors and officers' liability policy. And of course, that's the case because DNO policies have been crafted in such a way so they don't inadvertently duplicate the coverage being provided by the general liability policy. So what would happen to these board members that it will inevitably be sued? They won't have any defense coverage provided by their insurance carrier. So they're going to have to go out uh, and presumably the association is going to dissolve. So who will pay for the defense for these folks? Boy, that's a much higher pay grade than mine. I'll have to defer to Adrian on that one. But I will tell you, just looking at this from a very cursory basis, I don't think that there's going to be very long until the association has dried up all the potential DNO coverage, if there is any at all, and the general liability coverage. And, and then I don't know how the board members can be protected. I mean, I'm not as familiar with the Florida Common Interest Development Act as I have in California, but I know in California that the association is obligated to provide the board with a defense and some indemnity for the decisions they make. But how do they do that if they don't have a way to fund it? And if all the general liability coverage is, is gone, then what happens? So do you think there's any kind of collectible insurance for the individual owners for their loss of the you know, the, of the property and the special assessment that they're likely to receive? I think the, less, the special assessment coverage is going to be the, the vehicle that they'll most likely collect upon. 
and the loss of use, but I think most HO6 policies only have a very specific amount of, of loss of use coverage, one year or two year, depending on how the contract is worded. So it's not going to last for very long uh, in terms of the loss of use coverage. The loss assessment coverage is an interesting vehicle because you know, I think there's, you know, if you've got an 80 unit project, you probably have 80 different insurance companies responding, and they're all going to respond a little bit differently to that special assessment claim. But I think there will be a special assessment, and I do think that that will cause many owners to walk away, and then you'll have a, a building full of lenders trying to protect their collateral. That's an interesting scenario as well. So Adrian, you know, obviously, from what Tim has said, there's not likely to be uh, a tremendous amount of insurance provided to the association unit owners and the board of directors. What do you see happening? Well, in my experience in dealing with, with other situations where association boards have been sued, typical for the carrier to defend, but under a reservation of rights. They don't want to be accused or sued for bad faith, so they're going to defend. And if coverage limits by the carriers are low in this case, they may just tender policy limits then walk away. So it's not a good situation for the association and its board of directors. And uh, my experience with the earthquake, the Northridge earthquake here in California, in 94 was a lot of owners did walk away from their units. So I would not be surprised to see that happen here. There really isn't anything left for them to want to hang on to, and they don't want to be uh, pulled in to special assessments, so they just walk away. And whatever equity they had is just going to be gone. The insurance situation is not going to be very pretty. Is there any statute of limitations uh, in, with regard to a board member's decisions? For example, if a, a board member has sold his unit, moved away from Florida, came to California, bought a unit in a, some project in Palm Springs. The decisions that he or she made eight or 10 years ago, could they still be held accountable for those? Well, it's very likely they're going to get named in the lawsuits. And you'll know better than I the, uh, whether insurance will defend, but you know the liability issues yeah, that's something we could talk about. Absolutely, in, in, right about now. <laughs> so, Adrian, I guess we're looking at two different exposures here uh, from a liability point of view, as far as past board of directors that have acted and the present board of directors, and then the individual unit owners that are living there. So what exposure does the current board members and the past board members have? Okay, well, the exposure, they're going to be sued. The lawsuits have already been filed. There's a criminal investigation that's already been opened up. And negligence is fairly easy to prove. Criminal negligence is unlikely. There are too many, as Dennis Brooks pointed out, too many uh, factors that played into this. So there's possible unknown construction defects. There were probably inadequate building standards because you've got the building settling and leaning, much like Millennium Tower in San Francisco settling and leaning. And uh, the city was brought into litigation on, in that likely the city will be named in the litigation here. The other thing that's, that was clearly evident was the lack of maintenance. The association didn't have any reserves. Uh, a recent reserve study showed that they had 6.9% reserve funding, and there had been attempts by prior boards to make repairs. That was documented in some of the reports that were done online. And there was then three years ago, the, the board of directors commissioned an engineering study. And the engineering study pointed out in great detail 
extensive cracking, water intrusion, all kinds of problems going into the concrete, of course, which goes to the steel in the concrete, causing spalling, and all of that was evident. But at least these boards were trying to do something about it. And uh, they were looking at a scope of repairs and the cost involved, what, $14, $15 million? And of course, then you've got pushback by the members. So it's kind of the perfect storm of things happening surrounding the board of directors and their ability to actually make repairs. Because if the members aren't willing to pay to, to impose a special assessment, association has no money in order to make the repairs. And it's clear there's a lot of deferred maintenance on the property, but that should not have led to a collapse of the buildings. So obviously there are other factors involved. So uh, going back to your question, the criminal negligence, I, I just don't see any way that they're going to be able to establish that. But simple negligence, yes. Possibly gross negligence, perhaps. So there, and this then goes plays into the insurance and the insurance payout on the negligence issues. Entirely possible, even as Tim pointed out, they may deny coverage. And there was a lot of that happening in the Northridge earthquake denial of coverage, and yet insurance companies were paying out just to get out of the limelight. So I expect some monies will be paid. Personal liability by directors, unlikely. You've got the business judgment rule coming into play. Well, that brings up a, a question, Adrian. In regards to the business judgment rule, the business judgment rule, one of the uh, tenets is that you have to seek out the advice of experts. Now, if you seek out the advice of those experts, as they presumably did in this circumstance, and they had these engineering reports, but they don't heed the advice of those experts, can they still rely on the business judgment rule? Well, that does create a problem. Uh, and that is they could have a personal exposure if they didn't follow the business judgment rule. And the, the three legs to the, to the rule, three elements. One is that directors must act in good faith, uh, in the best interests of the association, and with reasonable inquiry. And we know that the recent boards were trying to do the right thing. And they were being blocked by members undermining them. And that brings us to the homeowners. Well, the homeowners have liability. Well, they don't have any, they don't owe a fiduciary duty to the association. Directors do, but not the members. So the members, they can argue against special assessments. They can say, we really don't need it. And oh, by the way, there was a, uh, what, an inspector who came to the property and, and assured them they were not in imminent danger. So again, that another element that's going to play into this. So the members are basically just going to lose their investments. Some have lost their lives uh, as a result of their failure as well as the board of directors. But if the investigations will there would be a lot, a great deal of discovery that's going to be going on with all these lawsuits. And more facts, more information will come out that will give us a little clearer picture of potential liability of the individual directors. You know, Adrian, you, you made a comment about the reservation of rights letter, and I agree with you. That would be the first thing that these carriers send out to the insured. But I also agree with you that once the carrier has determined that, it, that there is some exposure, they're going to cut their losses, and they're going to cut their losses by paying that policy limit. Because as soon as they pay the policy limit, they're done. The defense costs right. are, are, you know, they pack up their attorneys and go home, and they're no longer paying any defense costs. So th then that board 
uh, whether it's the current board or previous board members uh, that are being held accountable for decisions that were or were not made, have no defense other than to rely on the governing documents that may require the association to hold them and indemnify them, hold them harmless, and pick up those defense costs. I, I suspect in this environment, that's going to be a tough call because everybody's going to be already dealing with a special assessment for the property damage, and now they've got a special assessment for their share of the defense costs of the people that made the decisions that got them there in the first place. That kind of leads into the question, Adrian, you know, if we're talking about the board of directors not having coverage under their insurance, most likely, and past board members, there's got to be a hundred, if not more, past board members that could be named in the lawsuit. Are they all going to have to hire their own attorney, do you think, to defend themselves? Ooh, they can certainly make a demand on the association uh, because the documents likely require that the association indemnify them, defend them but the association doesn't have any money. Also, the court is already involved, and as I understand it, a receiver has been appointed, so the association is no longer in control of its monies, but the court is going to be a real mess. And the court will be managing this, the litigation as this moves forward. What if the association dissolves? Presumably they will because they, there's no more assets, there's no more building. Yes, the land could be sold and what you know, a little bit is recovered from the sale of the land will obviously go towards settling all of the claims. So I, you know, obviously there's, there's not going to be enough money to go around. And just as with other similar situations, there's never enough money to cover all of the demands. And I don't expect there will be here either. And I think selling the property is a hardship case in any circumstance where there's an HOA that has ultimately had to walk away. But particularly so when there's 96 souls or more, potentially, that have lost their lives, I'm wondering if that piece of property is even a buildable site from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, I don't believe it is. And I understand there's also discussion right now about not uh, you know, selling it, not building anything else on it, which means then the property really has no value. Uh, and if it's turned into a memorial or park or uh, who knows what they're going to do with it, there may not be any money even recovered from that. Adrian, why have reserve study requirements and not, and not require that the board fund them? Uh, well, unfortunately, Florida does not require reserve studies. They're optional at the discretion of the membership, and they can choose not to. It's not like California and a handful of other states that require the studies. There, they don't. And, uh, and, and even then, the board was trying to do the right thing, more recent boards, and they actually commissioned a reserve study. And the Association Reserves went in and did the study and discovered that it was only 6.9% funding levels that they had for what they needed for repairs. Uh, so this was typical of associations we work with all the time. Members do not want to raise their dues. They do not want to fund special, uh, you know, any kind of special assessments, reserve contributions. They want the lowest possible assessments, which is the worst possible case for them. Because it means inevitably there are going to be huge special assessments down the road. So it's a big mistake for associations to do that, to defer, 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 because it will catch up with them. And in this case, it was, it did in a spectacular way. Do you think mandatory inspections are, are going to be our future? Uh, I suspect there's going to be a lot of legislation across the, the U.S. All 50 states will be looking into it. I don't know how many of them will actually do something. I suspect the larger states that have large HOA populations, that would be California, Texas, obviously Florida, Illinois, 
and a few other the, of, of the states will probably pass some legislation that will uh, require uh, reserve studies, reserve funding, and inspections. So maybe at uh, the 20-year mark, 30-year mark. Florida did had it at the 40-year mark, and obviously that was not sufficient. So I suspect Florida will change that to maybe 30 or 20. Before we kind of get into the the building inspections, because I, I I'm, I'm curious about that. I did want to still ask a few questions on the liability, because I can imagine some of our listeners, you know, board of directors could be concerned that the actions they have now could come back to bite them, you know, years down the line, a decade later after they've sold their unit and moved on, they're no longer there. What kinds of protections, I mean, what potentially are these board members and, and past board members looking at? Do you think that they'd have to mount an expensive defense, or do you think that a judge is likely to look at it and use the business judgment rule and dismiss? Well, they're going to obviously have to defend. So there has to they're, once they're named, they're in the lawsuit. And even if they don't have any actual liability, they still have to defend. And it's a very painful process. It's expensive. It's very distressful for those who've been named in the litigation. And we already have too many boards that are not fulfilling their primary obligation. The whole point of the creation of an association and a board of directors is to maintain the common areas. That's their duty. And to maintain the common areas, they have to raise the funds. That means budget for and then assess the members to raise the money and then spend it. So they need to spend it on making the repairs, doing the maintenance. I mean, I've already been de- I've dealt with associations where board of directors having a aging population demographics within their association on fixed incomes feel like they're doing the right thing by keeping association budget and dues level and keeping them level for 15 years, 17 years so that they don't harm those on fixed income. And then it's a disaster strikes Uh, and then huge special assessments and all those people they were protecting are now thrown out of their units. They can't afford the special assessments. They have to walk away from their units. It's a complete disaster. And it's never in the best interest of the association to do that. Boards of directors need to be raising their dues. If they need to do it annually to keep pace with inflation, that's what they need to do. Unfortunately, too few of them are doing it. And are there loans that could be obtained, I would imagine, to, to make those kind of improvements and then finance it over the course of 20 years? Yes, we've dealt with many of these. There are banks that specialize in homeowner associations and making loans to associations for maintenance issues. And it's a matter of going to the membership, presenting it to them, and convincing the members that it's in their best interest to approve the loan and the special assessment used to pay back the loan over the course of 10, 15 years, whatever the number is, the term set by the bank. So uh, that way they get immediate monies to make all the repairs that they need, and they spread the cost out over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So uh, I would definitely encourage boards to explore those options if they've got a lot of deferred maintenance. You said that the members have to approve the loan, but members don't have to approve a special assessment correct? Well, they have to approve the special assessment. It depends on the CCNRs. The, the governing documents may give boards the power to, to obtain loans, but those loans are going to be uh, secured by special assessments. So the banks typically want to make sure that the 
membership has approved the special assessment. They're going to, so that they can then step into the shoes of the association in the event there's a default on the payments. So, uh, but I've never known an association to default on a loan. Those are pretty secure loans for banks. So that's definitely an option that every board should be looking at if they have a lot of deferred maintenance and they need to fix them now rather than continuing to defer them. You know, we've been talking about the potential for a special assessment and how that may be a vehicle to fund the, you know, the, the, the repairs that have been set aside for so many years. I want to talk just a, a little bit about loss assessment coverage. This coverage is designed to protect the individual unit owner against the special assessment the board is going to, going to be levying. Loss assessment coverage is readily available and it's cheap. Most policies come with only $1,000 worth of coverage. That's the only kind of, uh, I'm, I'm actually embarrassed for my industry that that's the case. Uh, most policies should be at least at 50000 or higher if they can get it. Uh, some carriers offer as much as $100,000 in, in loss assessment coverage. I am not suggesting, however, that special assessments that are levied against the board to cover deferred maintenance are necessarily going to be picked up under loss assessment coverage. The fact is we don't know. I've seen special assessments, particularly in the north of Jurisquake, where carriers all responded differently to the same special assessment. Some paid them all. Some paid special assessments that excluded the bad debt. Some paid the special assessments that excluded the building ordinance or code changes. But I think it's worth the investment to spend 12 or 15 bucks to get the loss assessment coverage up to as much as you want because at least you have the special assessment coverage to protect you against the special assessment the board may levy to cover the, the general liability portions of this loss, the bodily injury and property damage. I do expect that loss assessment coverage would pick up that coverage. Now, what about, does the association have any opportunity to go after the developer or uh, any vendors that maybe did some work down there that contributed to the loss? Well, certainly this going to depend on uh, statutes of limitations. Here, the, the building is 40 years old. In California, there's a 10-year statute of repose, which means they can't go after the developer uh, after 10 years. It's unlikely that Florida has anything longer than 10 years, so the developer is likely off the hook if the developer is even still in existence. Uh, if there were recent repairs and the repairs were negligent, then certainly vendors, recent vendors could be on the hook. You know, and there's something else I wanted to, to touch on too, on these large projects. Uh, sometimes those can be overwhelming for boards of directors when they're facing a really large, a lot amount of deferred maintenance and a large project to, to get them all done. This is where something like Dennis Brooks comes in. And, and we encourage construction managers that the board retain a construction manager to assist them in planning for the work that needs to be done. And this, Dennis, you can address what it is that you do in assisting with boards. Yeah, it, part of it is really educating the homeowners. First of all, educating the board. Uh, the board has to understand the need for the project and get on board, so to speak, with the need for it. Then you have to communicate that in such a way that the homeowners understand the need for it and will vote for a major assessment. And thinking about our, our meeting today, I went back and looked at a document, Adrian, that I think you were involved with. It was a study that was put together called Breaking Point, Examining Aging Infrastructures in Community Associations. And that was uh, not too long ago that you served on a committee uh, with a group of folks looking at that. And one of the biggest takeaways from that article falls right into what we see. And it, there, there was a state in one of the opening paragraphs that talk about associations fail to recognize serious structural and system failures. 
when damage becomes so obvious it can't be ignored, the tendency is to make superficial or temporary repairs and postpone comprehensive and in-depth restoration. And that is so much what we see. A lot of times we'll go on to projects that need major waterproofing, let's say of the pool deck, and, and to keep the water from dripping in the garage. And the first question after we put a scope of work together and get bids is, wow, that's really going to be expensive. What's our next best option? Well, the next best option isn't really an option if you want to protect the building. I mean, I've seen associations try to just epoxy cracks in the slab thinking that they'll just stop the water from coming through that crack. Well, the water's just going to move over and find a new crack to come through, and it's still going to saturate the slab, which is still going to wet the steel, which is still going to cause the corrosion, which is still going to cause a long-term structural problem for the building. And stopping the leak coming through that crack isn't really the solution. The the solution is, where's the water even coming from? How do we stop the water from getting to the slab at all? It's a hard deal to do when the assessment is going to be big. And I think that the most successful projects that we've been involved with over the years have also been associated with not only being able to convince the board what they really need to do to take care of their building and be able to convince the homeowners but it's associations that have been paying attention to their issues and educating those homeowners for years about an upcoming project that's going to be necessary or whatever, and that have put some money away in their reserves. I I was reading an article the other day by a reserve specialist that said, you know, a fully funded reserve, an HOA should always look to be at least 70% funded. And your comment on Champlain was that it was like, 6.5 6.5 or 6.9. I mean, that's just, that's just, you know, not preparing the membership for the expense that will come because property requires maintenance. Now, Dennis, have you seen an uptick in communities wanting their buildings inspected since this tragedy? Actually, we have. We've got several clients that immediately after this asked us while we're working for them to get them proposals from engineering companies to come in and do a kind of a head-to-toe evaluation of their building just to confirm that their building is in good, sound structural condition. And uh, so we're currently working with several associations that are in the process of obtaining those engineering proposals and plan to uh, make a decision and have an engineer, you know, literally come out and inspect their building and make sure that all the issues are okay. So should every board at this point, be freaking out and contacting, you know, companies like yours and getting their building inspected ASAP? Well, I think that might be a little bit of an overreaction. I don't think every association ought to immediately call a structural engineer. It depends on the the nature of the structure itself, what issues they've had over the years, how old the building is, how well their maintenance has been year in and year out. But certainly, older multi-story large structures that are 20, 30, 40 years old should consider that, should definitely consider that because a lot of times the damage that is happening is not really obvious unless you've got an eye for it, unless you know what you're looking for. And even then, there are issues of like with Champlain Towers, some of the videos I've watched, where some of the damage that was possibly happening 
to that building was something that could not have been seen by the naked eye. And therefore, there would have been a need for, for doing other types of testing. But there was enough type of damage occurring to that building that there should have been a concerted effort to do whatever was necessary in terms of testing to understand how the building was functioning and what was needed to maintain the structure. Yeah, let me piggyback on what Dennis is saying. It is common for boards not to see things. And things that are invisible um, just in, a, in their minds don't exist. And so, unfortunately, the stuff that's inside of walls, they are not aware of and they don't go looking. And that's why in California recently, they passed a bill requiring the inspection of balconies. And balconies have uh, a lot of potential uh, structural issues that are completely unknown to boards. And in fact, they have an association where one of the owners walked out onto her balcony and her leg went through the balcony. And so they immediately red tagged and inspected all the balconies. This was a few years ago and discovered that every single one of the balconies had serious structural uh, wood rot the structural weakness, and they red tagged them all. And it then uh, subsequently, it cost them a little over a million dollars to repair all of those balconies. So what Dennis said about things not being seen is true, which is why all associations need to be looking at things that are not visible and to do invasive testing inspections to find out. And unfortunately, with, at least in California, they're required to every nine years to inspect all their balconies by doing invasive testing or inspections. It would be, I suspect, something that could ripple across the U.S. now because of the Champlain Towers collapse, that there needs to be uh, more invasive inspections to find out just what's happening with the structure. Well, and the uh, balcony requirements, uh, Senate Bill 126, that's just for the balconies in California. So maybe we could see more extensive requirements throughout the country for structural engineers to come and inspect the entire building. Do you see that happening maybe? I see that happening, whether it happens sooner or later. I do see some of that happening. And and there are means of doing some of these inspections that are not, you know, that an average homeowner wouldn't really know anything about. You can check rebar and steel with radar and x-rays, and you can use a a thermal imaging infrared camera to look for moisture that's inside a structure that you can't see. You can use boroscopes. Of course, the term DT, which stands for destructive testing, is quite common and is what a lot of folks will experience with the balcony bill that we're just talking about, where they literally remove portions of the structure so that they can see the structural underpinnings, the beams and the columns and the connections uh, and, and to how well they're maintained and, and whether or not there's any damage occurring to, at those locations. Dennis, are there any type of mandatory building inspections required right now by local governments? Currently, there's not, with the exception of uh, the balcony bill that we've just been discussing. That has obviously now been mandated and, and required, and, and it's for a specific type of building. So it's wood frame 
structures that have certain exterior elements at a certain elevation above the ground that have to be inspected. And there's a schedule for that. And the fact that a, a licensed engineer architect has to make that inspection and got to come up to a statistical certainty as to that the balconies are safe and whatnot. But that bill doesn't apply to balconies on high-rise buildings that are steel and concrete. That bill doesn't apply to Champlain Towers type structure. I do think that out of this litigation eventually is going to come additional legislation that is going to require a deeper in-depth inspection at given age points, at least in the building, to make sure that the building is being paid attention to. Because the average homeowner, an average board member is, you know, even if they see that there's some water intrusion, which is probably the number one cause of most of this kind of damage, they're not necessarily going to understand the severity of a leak in the garage. And, and what that can be doing to the structure over time. And that makes great sense. You know, these folks are unit owners for the most part. HOA members are not construction engineers. Uh, they, they don't have that kind of a background. So what kind of warning signs should board members and owners be looking for in their communities? Well, I think the biggest single indicator is water. Okay, if water's showing up where it doesn't belong, you need to understand where it's coming from, and you need to stop it at the source, not uh, block it where it's causing the problem. And I would say water damage is probably the, the first and foremost. Any cracking in the foundations, that's certainly something that somebody ought to be paying attention to, because that, again, like at Champlain Towers, could be an indication of settlement of the structure. And whenever a building begins to settle, it puts undue stress on the structure in ways that the structure wasn't uh, designed to take. So that needs to be investigated. And Paying attention, uh, doing a thorough job walk and, and walking around the building and looking for, you know, cracks uh, around doors or windows. Those are usually weak points and you'll see a crack that goes off the corner of a window that indicates there's stress on that wall at that, that location. So what's causing that stress? That would be important to know. I think in Champlain Towers, the, from the videos I saw, uh, that there was evidence for years of moisture, uh, water in the garages, moisture in the columns, in the concrete columns. There was water staining on the concrete columns up from the slab, you know, two to three feet high, where you could tell water had just saturated that concrete for years. And those kinds of things are all major warning signs that an HOA board should immediately contact a structural engineer, somebody capable or qualified individual to walk the property and provide an assessment and not be, you know, I, I hate to say it, but not be looking for a Band-Aid solution that we can just patch this up or paint that wall again. I walked an association not too long ago that had a lot of water intrusion coming in the foundation of their garage on the walls. And they had, of course, all of the efflorescence that comes through with the moisture that's brought through. And their solution was going to be paint the walls so it doesn't look so bad. And that's the Band-Aid. And, and yes, it may look pretty and it might, you know, look pretty for another year or two before it starts to come through again. And But over that whole period of time, that damage is still occurring. Yeah, Ryan, I just want to piggyback on uh, Dennis on the potential liability issue. And I encourage boards to have a thorough inspection of their property and a written report because Dennis is right, water is the enemy. Whether it's coming through the roofs, the windows, the stucco, from plumbing, 
water is always the problem. And if they have a written report, and this can be done at the same time as reserves or in hand in hand with the reserve study, and the report gives them a clean bill of health, it protects them from potential liability in the event something happens. If the report points out that they need to make repairs in particular areas, and they make the repairs, that's great. If it points out they need to make repairs and they don't, then they have a problem. So they've got even uh, more exposure. So if they want to protect themselves, if boards uh, want to protect themselves from potential liability, they want to make sure that they get thorough reserve studies and that they fund those reserves and that they have additional, someone like uh, Dennis Brooks come in and do a more thorough inspection that might be invasive in looking at structural issues and giving them a report that they then need to follow. It seems to me that unless the California legislature makes a requirement of the board to, to go down this path, there's never going to be an adult in the room. And that's, that is what I find so frustrating about this, is that you know, in the 1980s, in the beginning of my insurance career, there was a provision that would require high-rise buildings on the Wilshire Corridor that didn't have residential fire sprinklers to put in residential fire sprinklers. And the people who fought that bill were the people who lived on the Wilshire Corridor, which I found so alarming to me that there wasn't somebody who stood up and said, hey, this is actually a good idea. This is going to save some lives. I mean, but fortunately, there's been no instance that I'm, maybe Adrian may be more aware of than I am, but just, it just that single circumstance reminded me that sometimes, regardless of your best efforts, you can educate and educate, but board members may not really get the, the, the picture until there's a loss like this. And then it's sobering for a while, and then they forget about it and move on. And, and again, no one's the adult in the room. So I totally agree with you, Tim. I was around during those times, and I remember uh, HOAs fighting uh, that that because, gosh, it was going to be it was going to look ugly to have to put a soffit in the corridor to hide the sprinkler pipe or or whatever. And uh, and they just they fought it from you know an aesthetic point of view, and they they fought it from a cost point of view. And Adrian, I've got a question for you. Where in all of this, and maybe Champlain Towers in some ways, helps current boards that are having trouble convincing their homeowners that this work really must happen, that there are serious life safety consequences if this work doesn't get done. Does this bolster uh, an association's ability to pass an emergency assessment if they can't get the membership in line with them to pass a special assessment? Emergency special assessments uh, uh, can be done, but even here in California, there are limitations. If it's a known problem, something the association has been aware of for some time, then it's no longer an emergency. It's something they could have prepared for. But it seems to me that they had reached crisis level, and the engineering report would have been sufficient that if I was their legal counsel, I would have told them, go ahead and pass an emergency special assessment and start making repairs. There are reports that the a prior board had resigned in frustration because they were getting so many so much pushback from members. And I'm not one that's in favor of legislation, but in this case, these kinds of situations, I think that may be what's required in order to give the boards the support that they need to do what they need to do, and that is to raise assessments to make the repairs that they need to make. Because they're always going to be pushback from members. They don't want to spend the money. And like you pointed out with the fire sprinklers on uh, Wilshire Boulevard and the high rises, I remember that as well. The members successfully, uh, the high rises fought the legislation and it was defeated. 
And so they didn't retrofit for sprinklers, which is just a, it can be, is appalling because it's going to take another huge disaster, a big fire and a high rise in order and a lot of loss of life to get that done. And that's just unfortunate. So Dennis, as far as takeaways go for, for communities and, and boards of directors, what would you recommend they do? Walk the property themselves if they notice any sort of issues, then hire uh, an inspector to come out, an engineer to look at the property? Absolutely. I mean, it's like the uh, the, the the statement we've heard now for the last few years uh, on the news. If you see something, say something. I guess it's walk the property and the board needs to understand their limitation uh, in the fact that they may or may not have any expertise in knowing what they're seeing but certainly look for signs of moisture, staining on the stucco, staining on the concrete walls, water pooling in locations where water shouldn't be standing. Those are all indications that there's something that's not right because the building codes are such that if things are properly waterproofed and sloped and drained, the building envelope, which is the exterior of the building, is to protect the structure from moisture. And so if you're seeing staining on the building envelope, there's a good chance that it's not protecting, that the envelope is not protecting the structure from the moisture that you're seeing as a result of that staining. So, yes, get somebody involved that can do uh, more in-depth inspection and is more qualified to do that and get the written report from them as Adrian suggests. And then my encouragement is follow the recommendations of the expert. I, I can't tell you how frustrating it is in this industry sometimes to make a recommendation that you know is the right recommendation for the property and somebody uh, or, or a group of people decide that they know better than you as to what they want to do. And it's usually, really, if you drive back the motive, it's all about the money. And they've got a brother-in-law that knows better. They've got a friend or, or somebody that seems to know better, and they decide they're going to go down a different road. And usually that different road is, sure, less expensive, but it's what I would consider a Band-Aid repair to a major problem. I'm sure if all these folks could go back at Champlain Towers, they would have approved that $100,000 special assessment. No problem. I'm sure they would have. Uh, Tim, did you have any takeaways from an insurance standpoint? I just think it, 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 we need someone to step in, in terms of legislatively, to make the boards uh, have something to hang their hat on. I think it would be very hard, even in this environment, for someone, an individual union owner, who wants to get elected to the board so they can get the reserves funded and so you can address some of these structural repairs because I think there'll be owners who are on fixed incomes who will fight them tooth and nail. And if, if the legislature makes it such that it's a requirement, then the board member who wants to do the right thing at least has that shelf on which to, to set the, his, his or her obligations upon and, and they don't have to feel like they're, they're fighting their own neighbors in order to get something done that needs to be done for the community. Adrian, do you have any takeaways? Yeah, takeaway here is just to remind boards that their primary obligation as a board of directors is not to never raise assessments. Their primary obligation is to maintain the common areas. And that's where Champlain Towers, they failed spectacularly. And it's not unique to Champlain Towers. There are buildings here in California, and I'm sure uh, all around the country, 
that have significant deferred maintenance that's going to cause very expensive repairs that could have been dealt with rather reasonably early on. And the longer they wait, the more expensive it becomes. So I think the takeaway is boards need to pay attention to maintenance. They need to get out there and take a look at what they've got. They need to bring in uh, somebody who can prepare a written report, and then they need to follow it. If I could jump on that just real quickly, one of the biggest things that we see having inspected a lot of buildings in, in Southern California, especially uh, any building that has a podium slab with uh, that's a structural concrete slab that the rest of the building is built above that. One of the, the, the things that I see over and over and over again is all sorts of maintenance man, jerry-rigged, pans in the hanging from the ceiling of the garage to catch drips coming through the slab. They're trying to keep the water from dripping on expensive cars and damaging the paint of the car. Well, I'll tell you, in the videos I saw of Champlain Tower, there were plenty of expensive cars that were crushed because the failure of the building. And I guess one of the things I would encourage people in Southern California to do is if you live in a in a building that's got a podium slab and you go out into the garage and you see numerous pans or trays or piping that's just catching leaks coming out of the ceiling and trying to run it over to a drain or down a column, that is a major warning sign that something needs to be fixed. Well, thank you guys so much for for joining us today and and talking about this. Adrian, how can our listeners reach you? Uh, Probably through the best way is through our website. Uh, We have the largest research website in the country, and it's davissterling.com, D-A-V-I-S-Sterling, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G.com. And they can submit questions and contact us through that, through the website. Great. Dennis, how about you? Uh, they can send me an email to my email. It's Dennis Brooks, and that's Dennis with two N's, D-E-N-N-I-S-B-R-O-O-K-S, at the letter D, and the word build.com. So Dennis Brooks at dbuild.com. They can also go to our website. We've got an info page that they can fill out, and that too will get to our office, and they can send us uh, any information that way. And here's Tim Klein's cell phone number. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tim, how should folks reach you? 24-7, we are available. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just want to say, I feel like I'm in such great company today. I, we've got two amazing guests joining us that have really laid this out very clearly for board members going forward. Uh, to reach us when everything's gone to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> our, our, our website address is kleinagency.com, or you can reach us by email at info at kleinagency.com. Either that will get to us. Klein, by the way, is spelled with a C, C-L-I-N-E. All right. As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics that you'd like to learn about, you can email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show. To share or subscribe to The HOA Show, visit us at hoashow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein Agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with your own legal counsel.